I started this series on the, the 12 steps and the biblical verses behind it uh, as something of a personal quest. Uh, I, re- I really wanted to understand the scriptures that went behind these, these steps. And, um, and so anyway, uh, in, in researching that and in working towards that, uh, it's been a good Bible study as well. And I really appreciate the structure behind all this uh, that they provided with the 12 steps. I'm a little anxious because uh, this is number 10, and that means there's only two more after tonight, and I need to find a new structure uh, for lessons. So I'm open to suggestions uh, following this. But let's, uh, let's take a look at where we're at in this uh, program. In the uh, traditional 12 steps that you have that started with Alcoholics Anonymous and then moved into other groups and then in 1990 it was embraced by the uh, uh, Celebrate Recovery and they affirmed the scriptural basis behind these. Step 10 is what's sometimes called the maintenance step or the, the, the ongoing that after you've uh, gone through the other nine and you've, you've come to a point of discovery and you've made amends and you uh, You've gone through this process of healing and making things right. Now at step 10, you have something with, and this will be the same with 10, 11, and 12, you have something that keeps you going, moving you forward. So 10 very simply says, we continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. The the idea here is that uh, everything that has led up to step 10 must continue that there should be some process for taking inventory and noticing. You know, it, it, it's, it's very much along the lines of maturity, that when we mature and we grow and we learn the habits that people have been telling us are good for our health, uh, you should eat right, you should uh, you know, take care of yourself, get enough sleep, brush your teeth, etc. Now, as a kid, sometimes you have to be reminded or pushed into that, uh, it's not, we're not flawless as adults, but after a while we develop the kind of maturity that says, you know, I, I ought to do this. And, and you, you have no one to blame but yourself, but you have no one to thank but yourself. You can just keep doing it. So that's what step 10 represents. It's that sort of maturity where we continue to do this and we admit our wrong and then we're going to do something about it as soon as it happens so that it doesn't become something, um, so that it doesn't grow and become something worse than it could be. The scripture that they've attached to this is one that I find very interesting, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Sounds like an ominous warning that just when you think you're doing fine, watch out. And, and by the way, this scripture could be used in such a way. I would call that a superstitious application of this. Just when everything's going fine, watch out, because here it all comes to knock you, to knock you down. Well, that's a superstitious view of things. One of the things that's been good about this study is I want to know why that verse fits into 1 Corinthians the way it does. So to do that, go with me to 1 Corinthians 10, and we want to take a look at things. First of all, understand that Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is one of two letters that we have from the Apostle Paul to the churches in Corinth. Uh, there, there may have been four letters 
total, but, but this one and, uh, and 2 Corinthians are the only ones that we have as a part of Scripture. There was correspondence, and there was, um, there was communication going on between Paul and the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, he is responding to them and responding to questions that they wrote to him and questions that they asked because they sent representatives to Paul to ask him about some matters. And so Paul is coaching and mentoring and teaching them. He's very much leading them even though he's not there and he's not present. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, he deals with one of the issues that they've asked about, and that is whether or not it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. And their stance, in a nutshell, goes something like this. Look, we know that idols aren't really anything, Paul. We know that they don't, they're not real. I mean, it's, uh, we, we, we know better than that. We're smarter than that. We know that there's not anything real behind it. It's just a, it's just a symbol. It's just an image. It's, it's, a, it's just a false idol. But we know it's not, there's not really any power behind it at all. We're, we're, we're better than that. We're not superstitious. So when you eat the meat at those feasts where some idol, some uh, pagan god is, is affirmed or recognized, I mean, there's not really anything to that, right? That's what they want to ask Paul. And of course, if Paul responds and says, well, now, hold on, there, there is something to that. Well, then they're going to be in the position of thinking, well, how can Paul be so, be so silly and superstitious? He's, he's better than that. But Paul also knows there's some problems that come with it, too. So he has to speak to them as people who are very enlightened and, and know better. But he wants to direct them to a better way of doing things. So they're asking the question, does the untruth of idols permit behavior that might be questionable or could be a stumbling block to others? Now understand, a stumbling block is, is more than a fence. You can be offended by things. And, and they could be upsetting, but you're going to move on. A stumbling block is something that actually causes you to, uh, you know, to, to regress in your discipleship. Or it causes you to go back to uh, things that you, that you may have done before committing yourself as a, as a servant and a disciple of Christ. And so... To navigate them through this in chapter 8, Paul starts and he's going to start drawing comparisons between idol festivals and the Lord's Supper. And it all starts with this verse in uh, chapter 8. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we possess all knowledge. He's affirming them. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. This is going to guide what he's going to say in chapters 8, 9, and 10. That knowledge is great. They have knowledge. We have knowledge. Yes. So if you tell me that idols don't really, they don't really have any power, they're not real, sure. I know that. You know that. We all know that. But knowledge is not the same thing as love. And so, he's, so knowledge is not going to, it's going to tell us maybe uh, something about idols and 
It may even suggest that it's okay to participate in idol festivals. I mean, just logically. But love may suggest that that's not the best choice, that that's not the way to do things. Because knowledge puffs up and love builds up. His argument's going to go, so in uh, verse 4 he says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Notice, that's much stronger than offended. It's defiled. It's like a poison to them. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your right does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, well, I'll never eat meat again so that I won't cause them to fall. And then Paul's going to go into chapter 9, and he's going to talk about um, his, his rights as an apostle, and yet he sacrifices those for the greater good. Now, one of the things that I think we should be clear about is that chapters 8, 9, and 10 do not describe a way of behavior where we as Christians are constantly walking on eggshells we understand that expression very gently very cautiously because there is that one anxious person out there that if we upset them oh they're going to be upset and we're all going to have to fix it that is a dysfunctional relationship and that's not christ-like at all he's describing a situation where in the exercise of our freedom which is very legitimate and and may even be good knowledge, perfect knowledge, we could cause someone else to lose their way. Um, so, for example, um, somebody might say, well, social drinking is fine, you know, we enjoy a social drink, but if you have a friend who's an alcoholic, that is a temptation more than they need to be putting up with now they are responsible for how they respond to that but why is it loving or why is it kind for us to insist on our way when supporting them would look like deferring to them and saying hey i'm not going to create a problem for you when this eating matter of eating or drinking doesn't get me any closer to god I've told this story before of a friend of mine who he had a problem with uh, it was, it, with um, with sexual addiction, and one day when we proposed going to see a movie, I saw a movie that I, I, in the listings, and I thought, well, it's an action movie. 
he said, well, you've got to understand. I mean, there's going to be some scenes in there, and, and that, that, that concerns me. Now, he wasn't judging me. He said, I, I just won't go. He said, that's fine if you want to go see that movie. But see, what I wanted to really do was spend some time with my friend and go to the movie. So I said, well, let's just pick another movie. He said, now, don't do it. He says, I'm not going to put this burden on you. And I said, it's no burden on me. I said, I'd be the one putting the burden on you. Why don't you choose the movie, and then we'll go, and we'll have a good time. And he did, and it was a better movie. Uh, but even if it hadn't been, the point is he took responsibility for himself. I demonstrated my genuine concern, which was I wanted to go to the movie. Now, if I really wanted to go see that movie, I'd go see it some other time, and I did. But, uh, and, and, I didn't, and I didn't have the concerns that he did in seeing that movie. But for him, it was a, and I, I don't want to go into all of it, but I respected that. And, I, you know, and I could have said, oh, well, that's nothing. You know, those are just electronic images on a screen. Those don't represent anything. He would have said, oh, I know that, but that's not the point. And, you know, maybe he was making a good point that I should have listened to anyway. And that's where Paul's going to go with this issue in Corinth. He's going to say, you know, maybe it's okay. It's perfectly okay to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. But is it best? Again, we're not talking about a situation where we have to walk gingerly around other Christians and worry that we're going to upset somebody. If you do that, you're going to drive yourself nuts. Chances are, even though you never intend to, somebody is going to get upset by something you do. Okay, And if they are not mature enough to express that and work that out, then that's on them, not you. Now, if you're the bull in the china shop who doesn't care about your behavior and you're setting everybody else off, then yet you're the one that we need to sit down and talk to and say, hey, I want to talk to you about kind of the things you do and the way you act. There might be a better way. All right. So we cleared all that out. Paul's talking about a situation where they have come to him. They have said, hey, we're kind of wondering about this thing because, you know, a lot of us, this participation in the idol feast is pretty good for a lot of reasons. And beside that, they serve the best steaks. And we just kind of want to know, you know, is this a good idea? Besides, we can do whatever we want, right? Paul, as long as we know the right thing, as long as we know what's right, can't we do whatever we want? And Paul says, well, you could, but maybe you shouldn't. Yeah, that, and that's, that's a very different set of terms. Uh, well, you, you, you can do something, but whether you should do something is a very different question. Um, for Paul, then, in chapter 9, he talks about freedom, but he talks about uh, what is uh, best. And uh, he, for example, says uh, in yeah, verse 19, 919, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews, to those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Now, is Paul just behaving like a politician where he's just pleasing the people all around him? Not at all. He's relating to them. He's not compromising the truth, and he's not presenting himself as anything that he's not. 
but he can participate in their culture as a servant. He can make himself like a slave to them. It's not an obligation that anyone puts on him other than himself, and that's an image of Christian maturity. Now, to, to wrap up the argument, he says, now, uh, I've, I've, I've applied this to myself and to Barnabas and the other apostles, and I hope you see our example, but if there's anything else they need to see, why don't, he takes them back to the origins of, um, of God's ban on idolatry in Exodus. And so in chapter 10, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Oh, see, they, they, they had knowledge, and they were pretty proud of that knowledge. And the last thing he wants for them is to be ignorant, to not have knowledge. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. That's the cloud that God used to lead them. They went through the waters of the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the same cloud and in the sea. They all ate and drank the same spiritual food, or they ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. Remember, they had the manna from heaven, the water from the rock. Uh, they all drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. He's saying it's like, I don't want to get into the whole argument. Some people are like, that was really Jesus incarnate as a rock. The point is that the rock that gives water is like Christ, who's the rock, who's the foundation. He's drawing all this together. Allow Paul to have a little poetry here. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They'll know this story. He knows this story. He's saying they're like us. I mean, what made them who they were? They all shared in the same baptism. He's ta I'm talking about the Corinthians. All the Corinthians shared in the same baptism. They were baptized into Christ. They shared the same meal. They ate the communion meal, the bread, the wine, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. They shared in that. He said, likewise, Israel had their baptism that they shared in, going through the sea, being led by the cloud. They had their communion. Notice the quote. They had their communion, which was the spiritual food provided by God. The water provided by God. And yet, despite all of that, they were held accountable when they got ahead of themselves and thought that they knew more than they really knew. When their knowledge puffed them up. And so he, he mentions in passing a few examples. He says these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things like they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up and ind to indulge in revelry. Where is that written? Well, Exodus 32, uh, even if you haven't read the story, if you've seen uh, Ten Commandments on ABC television, then you remember, boy, it just picks up there at the end after all that and Next thing you know, I mean, Moses is barely halfway up the mountain, and they're all having this wild dance down there around this uh, fake, fake cow. Anyway, when, when Aaron saw that he built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, which, by the way, it, it doesn't just run away on them like they depict it in the movie, that they're all just sitting around. Next thing you know, let's build a calf and have a crazy festival. Yay! They're intentional about this. Tomorrow, we're going to have a festival, and uh, it'll be a festival to the Lord with this uh, idol that we 
And we picked up these ideas in Egypt. And so the next day, and notice, they're motivated. They get up early. They're not just laying around. This isn't some you know, crazy party because the parents are out of town. I mean, they get up early the next morning. They, they really think that they're doing something important. They, they have to sacrifice. That's commitment, too. You don't make animal sacrifices unless you're committed because that's pretty hard. You know, and, and, and the thing you're going to want to do after, uh, you know, butchering a few animals is you're, you're going to want to, you know, eat the meat for yourself. But to make a sacrifice, that's, again, you, they're invested in this. They presented the fellowship offerings, and afterwards they sat down. Notice how they're just going through this. I mean, it's like, yeah, we're, we're thinking this through. We're doing this. And they're eating and they're drinking. Then they get up and indulge in revelry. So there's an intentional process here, and it involves the sacrifices and the eating and drinking, which Paul is picking this story up because of the questions that they've asked. He says, this doesn't go well for Israel. It doesn't go well at all, even though they shared in the same baptism and they had their communion as well. Um, he said, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Wait, where did that come from, Paul? Well, if you remember back in chapter 5, they've asked a question about that, that there's sexual immorality among them, and Paul has a problem, not so much that the sexual immorality is there, but the rest of them are just ignoring it. Uh, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. Now, that story didn't show up in the movie. What's going on there? That's Numbers 25. While Israel uh, was staying in... I can't read, Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. Notice that idolatry now is mixed in in this story with the loss of, of boundaries and, and uh, sexual immorality. Um, the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods and then you keep reading, and, and one of the sons of Aaron, Phineas, uh, there's this one fellow who's just so bold and audacious about it that he takes the, his Moabite wife, and, and they're going to engage in sexual immorality, which could have had something to do with the worship to these gods. And so Phineas uh, gets pretty serious, takes a spear, runs it right through the two of them, and that's when the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But... Up to that point, 24,000 had died. Um, now, right here in Corinth, Paul says 23,000 of them died. Oh, we're off by 1,000. The whole Bible just fell apart right there, didn't it? Okay, I mean, let, uh, I, I, think, I think there's a margin of error. Uh, this is obviously the story. You know, the, th this does not mean that the Bible falls apart, all right? Both of those are a huge number that die. What Paul is pointing out is there are consequences to these actions. They know the story. Paul, by the way, doesn't have Wikipedia right in front of him. He can't just go and look it up. Uh, and the Holy Spirit inspires him. It doesn't give him infallible you know, recall. That would just be... Uh, his mentality checking out God works through his mentality to inspire him to write just as he inspires four different people to write gospels the way that they write them 
again, the, the, the point is taken, whether it's 23,000, 24,000, or if you know, one of these is a translation error, or however you want to reconcile it, the point is well taken. That when this kind of activity is part of the community and idolatry is involved, people are going to die. It's, it's going to be harmful. It's going to hurt. Uh, he goes on in 1 Corinthians to say, um, uh, we should not test Christ, as some of them did, and they were killed by snakes. That story might be a little more familiar to you. People grow impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, uh, and we detest the miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. Which is an interesting story because then God instructs Moses to make the bronze serpent. That will save them when it's lifted up. But then later on, that becomes an idol and has to be destroyed. So even something that's good can become idolatrous when rather than representing the gift of God, it becomes the thing that's worshipped as God. That knowledge we may think is good, but it can carry us away from God. Uh, the other story that he mentions is number 16 and I've just put a few pieces you'd have to read the entire chapter but there is a rebellion led by Korah, Dathan and Abiram they think that their way they're, they're, they're like rebellious priests they think that their way of worshiping God is better than how Moses and Aaron do it and so they decide to strike out on their own uh, they oppose Moses they oppose Aaron it's a very uncomfortable situation, the whole thing. Uh, they are immediately swallowed up by the earth when Moses says, you know, let God, you know, this is one of those moments where it's like, well, why doesn't God just prove himself by opening up a hole in the ground and swallowing up these guys? Well, he does. It happens right then and there. And then there's also another one of these plagues that tens of thousands of people die in this plague. Uh, again, the point is taken, and this is what happens to Israel, even though they share in that wonderful calling and blessing. Because they doubt God, and because they complain, and they murmur, and they grumble, they suffer. What they are doing is they are relying on their knowledge and their way they think that they are standing firm, and yet they can fall. So I think that Paul's point is if, um, you know, if they could be held accountable, then why do we think that we can't be held accountable? Nowhere in the New Testament do you find that, um, that any of the New Testament writers will say, listen, we're... we're um, we're much better than those people. We're much better than those people back then. Now, take, for example, Hebrews. He'll say, uh, our situation is better than theirs. But he'll look back at them and he'll say, now they were heroes. Look at what they did by faith. And they didn't even have as much to hope in as we do. No, we, we can't take a, well, it would be wrong anyway, but we cannot ever take a position of, uh, 
you know, of, of pride and being puffed up over those who went before us as if we know better. Because they were held accountable. And what we ought to do is we ought to be humble. And we ought to learn from that. And that's exactly what step 10 is guiding us to do. When we recognize that we're wrong, we're going to admit it and we're going to act on that. And if you think you're standing form, firm, then you know that you're okay. Be careful. You might fall. Um, it's, it's interesting that this shows up in a chapter that's all about idolatry because idolatry is always a form of self-deception. Idolatry represents us putting something that, that we invest in up as our God. Rather than trusting in the creator God, the maker of everything, we invest in ideas. And, and you know, we can laugh at the people who, who, uh, who worship graven images, but we have images and symbols like money and credit cards and security and, and whatever our banners and emblems are, and we can put more faith in those. Sometimes our investment in those will shape the way our life goes more than our investment in Creator God. Some people are having some really bad times right now, and their days are ruined every Saturday because these people who uh, they, they have these mock battles under the banner of the red pig keep having a horrible Saturday over and over again and if you're a fan and it's like gosh that's tough that's fine but I'm telling you there's some people who are making a lot of money who are suffering because of that tell me that that's not idolatry to a certain extent we can say oh it's just a game that's just sports that's just the way we live in yeah sure but when we invest that much in it and we don't realize that there's much more to life than that then it becomes idolatry and you can do that with anything you can do that with your family, you can do that with your career, you can do that with, with, your, with any of your expectations that you may have. And when we think that we know better, that's when knowledge puffs up, but it takes love to build up. Step 10 demands a kind of a humility, and I think that verse attaches to it very appropriately, that's rooted in God's grace. You know, right there we're saying, oh, well, I don't, well, don't want to be so arrogant that I think I'm going to fall. Then trust in His grace. Because that's always going to be enough. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says uh, that he asked God to remove that thorn from his side. Whatever it was. I mean, in his world of knowledge, things would be so much better if that thorn in his side would be taken away. But instead, God says, no, you're going to keep it. But my grace is going to be more than enough for you to handle it. May not be what Paul chose but it's what he could trust in. Um, well, I thank you for your attention, and uh, I hope that uh, 1 Corinthians um, 10, 12 encourages us to just practice and live out that. And by the way, when we do that, it doesn't make us sad and morose. Living with that kind of trust and faith in God should lead us to happiness and contentment because we know that he is... Is, is, by the way, right after that follows the verse that says, um, you know, that when we're tempted, he provides a way of escape. Okay, 
some of us keep saying, you know, well, I guess if God's going to rescue me from, you know, whatever this sin is, he's going to show up. You know, here it's going to. Hey, you have to look for that. <laughs> you have to seek that. You have to find that. And, and, and the thing is, he will he is after your best interest. God's not trying to trip us up. He's trying to build us up. So with that, we're going to sing this song. If you need to partake of the uh, communion, that's in room 100. Uh, let's stand and sing this song together, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer.